0: Welcome back to the Conduct Detrimental Podcast. This is Dan Worley, one of your hosts. This is the second part of a two-part podcast on the Ezekiel Elliott investigation. We had uh, USA Today's AJ Perez on for the first part. Uh, that, that podcast is already posted, so please check it out. Uh, we, we just got ran pretty far, so we decided to break it up into two separate pods. So thanks for listening. Thanks to AJ for coming on the show. I, he was great. They're doing a great job over there at USA Today of um, getting out ahead of these stories and, and do, really doing a lot of digging, as you heard. Um, you know, I think that Dan and I would be remiss to not um, you know, keep talking a little bit more about this issue and some other things going on, including, obviously, the huge news of this week, huge. of this year, of this decade, Donald Trump, our new president-elect. Dan, your thoughts?
1: Well, it keeps coming back to sports law while we're we're trying to wrap our arms around the unthinkable. I mean, and for all of us, we kind of humored this and found it, you know, kindly uh, kind of oddly perverse that, you know, businessman and reality show host Donald J. Trump was running for the presidency and we enjoyed the theater of it all. And, you know, now I think we're just. We're kind of wondering what happened. We're we're just you know the the nation is taking or at least half the nation is going through, uh you know some like you know just Stockholm syndrome and 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 try or or fatigue over this situation. But now that now that we've been a couple of days past the election, what I'm trying to process from it is he will be America's uh, probably uh, the the one president who has the most the greatest connection to the to sports law. Uh, while Donald Trump is a reality show host, uh, he's a builder of businesses and he's a real estate magnate and soon to be our president, he was also a plaintiff against the National Football League in the 1980s. And uh, I remember I was a kid applying. I was a, I was a college student thinking about law school and I was fascinated by the antitrust uh, case brought by the United States Football League against the, the NFL and Trump Pushed for the league for the USFL to compete head to head against the NFL. He wasn't content uh, to have a um, you know a, a spring or, or summer you know football season. He wanted to go head to head against the NFL and try to gin up an antitrust case. And he did, and he was victorious. Unfortunately for for Trump and for the USFL, the New York federal jury only awarded the grand sum of one dollar as damages, which, as you know, under antitrust. You know, practice uh, is trebled is trebled to three dollars. So, you know, Donald Trump has always been a great sportsman, a golfer. Uh, he's been a sports fan, but he was also part of one of the great sports law cases of the 1980s. So I know this is somebody who uh, is passionate about sports and, and knows quite a bit about sports and and, and uh, I'll, I'll find it interesting uh, how he uses his time in the White House to keep on top of uh, the world of sports. Unfortunately, we're never going to have an antitrust case like that again between two competing football leagues, but it was just wonderful theater during the 1980s and part Part of me uh, might have been motivated to go to law school off of that case.
0: There you go. Donald Trump sent Dan Wallach to law school. You heard it here. Um, Do I yeah, blame he, him for that? We obviously saw, <laughs> no. I'm just kidding. We obviously saw in, in Barack Obama another huge sports fan and a basketball player in yep. office. And um, you know, we see him every year doing his NCAA picks. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what what Trump does. He's he's appeared. He's. Uh, Choke slammed, I think he did. Vince McMahon on WWE at one point. In uh, one of his infamous promises, uh, he actually promised to fire Roger Goodell if he ever became president, which is comical on a few oh, levels.
1: We're going to take him up on that, right? Right.
0: <laughs> Could be the biggest uh, win from the election, but well, but
1: but you know, more seriously, Dan, uh, a Donald Trump presidency does have some implications. Um, on issues um, such as you know gambling and uh, a whole host of domestic issues, I don't want to focus on sports betting and fantasy sports, but uh, a Trump White House could lead to a, a shift in in our our, our federal policy on, on gambling, on 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 gaming, sports betting. Uh, the conventional, at least my, my, my initial takeaway is that Donald Trump being the president might be good for the legalization of sports betting. It was, it's going to happen anyway, whether it was Hillary in the white house or Trump. Uh, but I, I know he's a strong proponent of sports betting. At least he was in the early 1990s when he ran, uh, a couple of New Jersey casinos and was, uh, pushing, uh, very heavily for New Jersey to pass, um, uh, a, a sports gambling legalization bill during that one we, one year window that PASPA afforded New Jersey between 1992 and 1993, and while he no longer you know has an ownership interest in casinos, uh, I, I know he's very support. I would imagine he'd be very supportive of of, the, of of legalizing sports betting, and possibly with Chris Christie as a as the attorney general, I think the atmosphere might become more receptive. Uh, for sports betting uh, under a Trump, Trump administration.
0: Right. That's a great point. And, you know, I, I think another change that could happen in the legal world, not necessarily in sports law, is though obviously there could be a change in the composition of the U.S. Supreme Court, oh, um, yeah. which, you know, we don't know what cases are going to be up and what issues are going to be up, but uh, that's obviously going to be a, a the potential for a huge change. There's one open seat right now. There's others – that may open up during these next four mm-hmm. years. So um, that will be something to keep an eye on. Uh, and it's how, just how, an interesting how, time how, to be alive. How,
1: how, <laughs> well, that, that's the understatement of, of, of the century, uh, you know, after what, what's, been, uh, what's happened the last couple of days. But I want to go back to the Supreme Court. How, how do you think the composition of the Supreme Court, uh, you know, could impact uh, the NFL work stoppage in, in 2021? Right now we have, you know, four liberal – Slash Democratic uh, presidential appointees, and we have four uh, Republican presidential, you know, appointees. So the so so the the present court is split down the middle. If Trump has the opportunity to fill Scalia's seat with a conservative, and then if Ginsburg, uh, you know, steps down, uh, she's going to hold on as long as she can now. Uh, but he has the ability to pack the court with a few more uh, conservative justices. How could that affect? Uh, you know labor and antitrust issues if you're uh if you're thinking about the NFL a potential NFL work stoppage in 2021
0: right and it, i think that's probably too far attenuated to really make a difference from what we've seen on past lawsuits and and Dan I know you and I are planning in the next few days to do a a, a different podcast on the NBA collective bargaining situation and we'll talk a little bit more about sort of the procedure of how a lawsuit gets filed in the collective Mm -hmm. bargaining context of a professional sport and what we saw in the Tom Brady case, not to flake it, the other Tom Brady lawsuit filed in 2011 and and the NBA filed a a similar suit. Um, You know, I think that those lawsuits are all usually settlement driven, obviously to to Mm -hmm. come together to get an agreement. But I think you make a good point to if it gets really nasty, which I can't imagine relations between the PA and the league office being much worse than they are right now. I mean, there's just zero trust between the two. You know, If things get really nasty and you see uh, lawsuits in the interim that have labor issues and or eventually a decertification lawsuit in – is it 2021 that the CBA is up? Well, I think
1: it expires in 2020 uh, after the 2020 season. So we're looking at uh, uh, impact on a – 2021
0: season, right? And, and you think that the you know there would be some precedent that would have come down from a new Supreme Court by then on labor issues, but it's it's difficult to say. I mean, it's just all very speculative at this point. What do you think?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, if you're if you're a players' union or you're any labor union in the United States, uh, the prospect of bad case law coming down against you on antitrust subjects, arbitration issues, uh, a, a, a new conservative majority or supermajority uh, Supreme Court that's used heavily uh, towards Republican-appointed justices, uh, five more years or four more years of of decisional law that could be impacted uh, by a reconstituted court uh, bolstered by uh, you know, Trump appointees. So I believe uh, if, you thought, if you thought the second, sec- second Circuit decision in Brady was bad, you thought the Eighth Circuit decision in Peterson was problematic for the players, I think the judicial uh, environment, uh, and, you know, is, is certainly going to get worse for players rather than get better because we're headed more towards a pro-business or business-friendly uh, judicial environment than one in which individual rights and employee rights are going to, you know, you know trump, uh, you know, management <laughs> rights. So Unintended. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely pun intended. So if the, if, if the NFLPA was, you know, bracing for uh, a litigation battle in 2021, um, Tuesday's result uh, does not bode well for that, you know, f- for that potential work stoppage if you're the players' union.
0: Right. Another interesting aspect of, of what we've seen this week in the presidential uh, election was really seeing – NBA coaches come out and talk about it. And, and um, you know, I think it seemed to me that there was a lot of backlash that came out, uh, you know, whether it was Dan Van Gundy or Steve Kerr or Doc Rivers. I mean, they all made sort of politically correct comments that, you know, we need to work together and, and things of that nature. But then today we finally saw at least the first player or coach that I've seen come out in support of Trump. Was none other than Bears quarterback Jay Cutler saying that he voted for him and was happy with the result. Um, of the thousands of
1: athletes in all of professional sports, could it have been anyone other than Jay Cutler who came out first?
0: <laughs> the most, and I'm I'm a born and raised Chicagoan, and he's one of the most hated athletes in pretty much the whole country, probably, and especially sort of getting to that point now in Chicago. So, uh, how about a shilling
1: Cutler? ticket
0: in 2024 <laughs> The is uh, running mate do we know yet he's just <laughs> gonna run by himself but it'll be an interesting race you know so but in all seriousness though no, that i think that was interesting you know i um i don't remember i guess i guess when obama first won, i just don't remember sort of those sort of sentiments coming out and, and the media asking coaches and players about it and i guess um you know, a lot of that has to do with social media. Um, but what did you make of some of those comments and, and what was said? Uh,
1: from Stan Van Gundy, I'm, I'm a cynical person. I think part of me wants to believe that he, that he holds those views, uh, you know, deep down, but he's also, uh, you know, he's, he's a general manager and he's a coach and, uh, part of, Part of the game is luring and recruiting free agents. So the cynic in me uh, seems to think that maybe part of Stan Van Gundy's pitch is, you know, look, I'm, you know, I'm down with the with with the vast majority of players in the league. Uh, I'm experiencing or feeling what you're feeling. Um, I, I think it was a smart move by Van Gundy to sort of throw, to cast his, you know, his, his lot in with that, with, with that, you know, uh, you know, position on Trump, because the vast majority of the league is African American, and the vast majority of the league can't stomach the idea of Donald Trump being the president. So I think he was playing to his, I think Van Gundy's playing to his base, but he's also been a fairly outspoken person throughout his career, more recently than earlier in his career when he worked for uh, The Heat and was under Pat Riley's thumb, he was a little bit less outspoken. But since leaving Miami, he's become one of the most outspoken coaches in all of professional sports. And what we're hearing from him this week is pretty consistent with the way he's been you know, carrying himself in, in the public eye. He's no shrinking violet. He's opinionated. And Jeff Van Gundy, too. Let's not forget that Stan and Jeff uh, are related for a reason and and one of the reasons why why jeff is so successful on television is because he is not afraid to speak his mind he's opinionated sometimes goes a little bit too far uh, but that's that's a that's a, an admirable family trait and and van gundy is just you know continuing in that vein but but part of me believes uh, he, he's basically trying to or in part trying to, um, you know, reach out to players and and cast them and, and look ahead for future recruitment purposes. He could have said these things to his players privately, but the fact that he said them publicly uh, could also have another down the road goal in mind.
0: Right. It, it's interesting that he's the coach of the Detroit Pistons and uh, sort of surprisingly, Michigan. Yes, maybe not surprising, but Michigan was a battleground state um, that I believe yep. Trump ultimately won, and there was some regret on his part, on Stan Van Gundy's part, for not sort of voicing these opinions earlier with the hopes of swaying more voters in one direction or maybe getting more voters to come out to the polls. Um, hey, it really man, is an interesting dynamic of of how a pro sports team and a coach may influence an election, ever you know, however remote it may be.
1: I think it's a lesson to us all uh, that uh if we feel that strongly about our Republic and um, want to see it in 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 you know the Republicans remain in power or Democrats, you have to do more than just simply vote and uh you can't ever think that anything is in the bag, uh especially after this election. Will we ever believe polls again? Um, That's pretty I, wild. Yeah, I, I think if, if the time to speak, the time to act is before, not afterwards. And I think um, so many of us, myself included, are wondering, you know, what more we could have done because I know I could have done more. I mean, I can't tell you how many phone calls uh, I've been receiving over the last, you know, two months from uh, the Florida Democratic Party, uh, various, you know, various campaigns to have me, you know, work as a A poll watcher uh, to assist in the campaign and I've always said oh I'm too busy I'm too busy Um, I can't really do it now and you know my my involvement would not have made a difference in the state of Florida but you can't you can't take that you know that position I think there's more that every one of us can do and maybe maybe a Trump election will cause us to you know maybe reflect a little bit more and 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 think about how we could approach our civic duty as citizens uh, going forward rather than just simply uh, you know Complaining about things on Twitter or voicing our opinions on social media that um, you know that, that, that there might be that this might channel our behavior or channel behavior in a positive way uh, going forward because this country belongs to all of us, and you know we 're not powerless as the election of Donald J. Trump proves the power does rest in the people. And, and they did speak, and their voices were ignored. Uh, so I think going forward, there's so much more that I think I want to do, and, and I do have some regrets over it. But, uh, I mean, it was a fair election. He deserved, he deserved it. We, uh, the Democrats had the wrong, in my view, uh, the right candidate was the runner-up, Bernie Sanders. And uh, I think a lot of valuable lessons are going to be learned here uh, from, from trying to manipulate the process to clear the deck for a favored candidate it was clear that 2016, at least to me and to so many Americans, was the year that a change candidate w- w- was desired. And both sides had a change candidate, but only one was nominated. Boy, this is getting far afield. Yeah, I know. I have we were... to edit all this out. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get
0: back. Let's get back to uh, sports law. No, we're uh, going to be
1: on POTUS. We're going to host a show on Sirius on, on the POTUS channel. <laughs> That's what's next for us.
0: Dan, do you have a, two, uh, a few minutes to uh, chat about what we heard from AJ and the Ezekiel Elliott and, and some of the issues that we wanted to dive into between us a little further?
1: yeah i mean this is th- th- this case uh could potentially be a blacker eye for the nFL than Josh Elliott because you've got uh, you, you've got the race you've got the racial uh, um, you know the discrepancy in treatment uh, between a white player and an african american player for conduct that could be worse uh so if, so 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 i think the I think the players around the league are going to be looking closely at how Ezekiel Elliott is treated in this instance, given the free ride almost that Josh Brown got. And it also raises the issue of preferential treatment, which owners are closer to the commissioner than others. Uh, you know, uh, Jerry Jones trying to you know impact the league's investigation. And it does underscore the need for why I think this kind of disciplinary process not only should be changed, but the uh, the arbiter, And the the person who meets out the the discipline needs to have a little bit of distance from the owners. And that's not possible as long as Roger Goodell is the commissioner and gets elected by a majority of owners, some of whom he's closer to than others. And as long as he continues to be in the position of the judge and the appellate court, uh, issues of selective enforcement and bias are going to permeate this process until it's changed
0: right and at least the appearance of bias and for all the reasons that you just yeah. laid out and i think for me the really interesting thing here is the timing of this um for for a yeah. couple different reasons the first one being it's right on the heels of the, the josh brown investigation there was a huge media backlash that you know he basically botched it for a number of re- a number of ways including under suspending josh brown not doing a complete investigation probably not waiting until all the facts were in because they suspended him before the Uh, The criminal investigation was closed, which means they couldn't get all the documents that they needed. Um, So all of that put together, it really interested me to see how the NFL now maybe learns from that case or maybe just overacts and goes the other direction. I think the biggest... Criticism, I think the most fair criticism of the NFL in in many of their suspensions is that they're just wildly inconsistent. They don't follow their own policies. They don't follow their own precedent. But the way that they've negotiated the policies, they're able to get away with that, at least uh, sometimes. So uh, that that half of it's really interesting as far as the timing. And then also, just from... This isn't the most important point by any means, but just sort of the football aspect of it moving forward in the year. and, And we touched on this earlier, but... You know, Obviously, this is coming down the home stretch. The Cowboys are having a great season. They have these two star rookies, America's team. Um, will the NFA, NFL drag their feet and wait until the offseason to do anything? Uh, because it's a PR-driven decision, that's basically what we've seen the NFL do in the past. Not necessarily drag their feet, but use PR sort of as the number one priority in these things. And so um, that'll be something interesting to follow moving forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, we're only uh, a month and a half since the uh, NFL learned of the second uh, domestic violence violence. Incident in South Florida, but they've been aware of the Columbus incident, uh, going back to July. I mean, you, you know, the, the, the photos on deadspin. I mean, if, if, you know, how could they not be dragging their heels if we're already in November, five months after the incident, they have the photos, they have the police report. They have presumably interviewed, uh, you know, the, 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 the victim, um, uh, you know so if the nfl is not going to act uh, expeditiously uh, why even have an investigation why even have a policy that carries with it discipline i mean it does raise the question shouldn't be shouldn't we be waiting until until all of the well, well I, I guess in in the in, in the case with elliot the the criminal justice system has run its course because neither law enforcement agency saw for, saw fit to bring charges so be That's that in
0: that this is should be happening already or very soon. There's no reason to wait because the cases are closed. We heard AJ say that when you ask for documents uh, and the case is closed, you usually get them really fast. And that's what happened with his experience. So there's yeah, no I, there's no excuse for them to drag it on here.
1: Yeah, I know he got the email from uh, the Aventura Police Department showing the NFL's public records request. He got that within – I know for a fact from you know sort of off-mic conversations, he got that within a few hours. Okay, so once the investigation closes, uh, forget it. There's you you don't you don't need to have any inside source or any fixer to get public records in Florida. You get them prompt pronto. You get them pretty quickly for something that's not an open investigation. So if the league is waited from July until November on a case where there was some obvious physical injuries and a police report that noted that that, that there might have been multiple incidents uh if there's not a, if there's not enough evidence now to suspend uh, Ezekiel Elliott when will there ever be so the NFL should either get out of the business of trying to uh, suspend players for domestic violence where there are no charges brought, and 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 or, or or you know if they're going to if they're going to impose discipline, the time to have done it would have been uh, you know in August or September. And now that we get closer to the end of the regular season, this does impact. Uh, it does impact the integrity of the league. It does impact the integrity of the competition because uh, you have a team fighting for the playoffs that's one of the best teams in the NFL this year, and you're going to take away their best player for a couple of da- for a couple of games i don 't think the team 's standing should have anything to do with the discipline but i 'm wondering why the NFL has waited so long and it does point to the uh, to the ineffectiveness of the policy. The randomness, the inconsistency and the arbitrariness of a policy where you have conduct that has been known and a case that has been closed officially since July and here we are in November without any action taken. I mean each case, each successive case seems to be worse than the other or than the one that came before it and how the NFL is handling their affairs.
0: Right. And we noted this in the previous podcast and not only is Goodell's way of handling these cases – impacting the victim, which is which is the most important part here, re-traumatizing the victim. But he's actually hurting the player worse as well. So we saw him screw up the suspension and Ray Rice effectively end his career because it turned into a giant PR nightmare. And now no team won't sign him, not because he can't play, because he's suspended, but because you know he has this huge stigma on him. And the same thing arguably sort of happened with Josh Brown, although we're still sort of oh, totally, totally. working our way through that. And, and I think this Elliott case is starting to build up. And, you know, where we stand right now, that that sort of result has the possibility of happening, not of him being kicked out of the league per se, but this being a bigger issue than it would have been if they just yeah. dealt with it at, at, when they had the information and, and, and talked to the mm-hmm. witnesses, which uh, if they're acting diligently, they should have yeah. done by now, at least yeah. from what we know.
1: That's a great point. I mean, uh, as Elliot is 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 a completely different case because he has job security and career security. A thirty-year-old kicker and a a running back whose uh, you know gas tank has been emptied. Um, they're disposable, and they are basically uh, you, you know just you know they've also been victimized in the sense that they they have they have essentially lost their careers. Because they were ironically under suspended. had had Rice and Josh Brown been suspended six games to begin with, uh, they'd both be in the league today. Uh, I don't think there's any risk that something like that befalls Ezekiel Elliott in his rookie season. One of the great, uh, you know, you know, one of the great players in the league this year. Uh, I think the issue where it can really blow up to, for the NFL is is the the issue of the issue of the preferential treatment for Jerry Jones. And if he is suspended, how that plays out with African American players who saw a white place kicker who did these horrific things to his to his uh, to his significant other get only one game. So the rest of the, the rest of the players are going to be watching this and they're gonna be in an uproar if Ezekiel Elliott gets anything more than one game when he was never charged and he committed this conduct you know bef- before he was even a member of the NFL. Uh, I think that Bears watching and and there there are issues of race and there are issues of of preferential treatment that are looming in the background.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. I think this one has the potential to really blow up and Oh, I hope so. Well, we don't ho- I mean we hope so from just a, a sports legal nerd uh place, but uh um, oh, this
1: is cool stuff. I wouldn't say it's it, it's nerd stuff, but we've I, I think we're in this like vacuum in sports law for the last couple of weeks where you know we 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 really looking for a a, a sexy case and I think Elliot, the Elliott situation with the NFL has the potential uh to be one of those kinds of sagas, you know you know, almost like an Adrian Peterson or or a Brady. Uh it just depends on where it goes.
0: Right, exactly. That that's you know the point I was gonna make next is if they do suspend him, I mean, you'd think this is the type of case that could be sort of the next challenge of uh, inconsistency in ways of applying Mm. the personal conduct policy, uh, which has been pretty clearly mishandled since the policy came into effect. And I'll I'll credit Jane McManus of ESPN on doing the research, but there has been three players suspended under the policy since it's gone into effect. The policy says there's a a minimum six game suspension. The three players have received a four game, a two game, and a one game suspension.
1: Who who are the players?
0: Well, the one is Josh Brown. I forget the other two. They're they're less name brand. It was sort of, um, you know, players that didn't hit the news cycle as hard. And, and, and you you look that up and look up Jane McManus' stuff. Um, sure. she has it in there. But. Um, Why is
1: this under the uh, personal conduct policy and not the domestic violence policy? Is it? Uh, b- well, the domestic,
0: he- d- domestic violence policy is in the personal conduct policy. It's the same. Thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's just a, a new part of it. They added uh, two years ago, right after Ray Rice happened, they amended the personal conduct policy to include these specific penalties for domestic violence. And uh, I think they also looped in some other things such as child abuse in there as well. But, uh, you know the the point is obviously that if they let's say they suspend Elliott for six games, I mean that, that seems like a case very ripe for appeal, and we know that there's an internal appeals process within the NFL. That from the case all the cases I've ever researched or seen, I've never seen a penalty reduced under that under that internal policy, and that's because Roger Goodell has the power to sit on and arbitrate, be the arbitrator over his own disciplined decision. Uh, and so, unless some new evidence happened yeah. or was discovered between then and then, there's no reason to think that Goodell would ever reduce the suspension. So it's basically rubber stamping the original decision. But like we saw in DeFlake and Peterson, you know, these yeah. obviously go into federal court.
1: Yeah, but how quickly the internal appeal under Article 46 would happen? Pretty, uh, pretty quickly, pretty expeditiously. It would right. be uh, you'd have a deci- you'd have a disciplinary decision, and then you know an appeal right asserted. And then would Goodell just, you know, preside over, um, you know, a hearing uh, within a matter of a couple of weeks?
0: Yeah, I think I'd have to go back and double double check the policy, but I think it's they have a time limit. In the policy, I think it's you know less than ten days, something yeah. like the next week. So it would depend on which day of the week it came out on. But
1: w- would the suspension be stayed while he pursues his appellate rights? It would have to be, I would think, because then you know it would his his it would, it would become a mood issue if he served a suspension while there was an appeal pending. Uh, so, well this
0: you mean the appeal on the NFL level or on the the, uh, the court appeal level?
1: on the, the no the appeal on the NFL level is, let's say he yeah. gets four games it would be it would be stayed so i think the NFL would probably put this on a fast track and and conduct a uh pretty much a uh a fate, a, fate a complete preordained result appeal that takes place within a couple of weeks
0: Exactly exactly and then the suspension would you know, allegedly start, but there would probably be a federal lawsuit filed, and then at that point they'd ask for a stay, which would be uh, a stay from the federal court, which we've seen granted before, obviously in Deflategate and other cases. But um, you know, based on the rulings that we just saw, you know, these federal appellate rulings in Peterson yeah. and Deflategate, I think there's a a, a much weaker argument that the suspension the suspension should be stayed at that stage.
1: What do you what do you think? You know, I, I know we're getting ahead of ourselves and trying to project uh, what could be months out. But what would Elliot's best? legal argument be were he to receive a let's say a six game suspension or a four game suspension because there, we could be talking about multiple incidents here the the NFL could conceivably punish him uh, not just for the Ohio incident but for the uh, Florida incident and maybe the multiple incidents within Florida and, 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 and almost start to have um, you know successive penalties strung together so I mean do you see that happening as a possibility or just like a straight suspension of you know like a short Duration a few games.
0: Well, so the domestic violence he lists, um, in addition to the mitigating factors that we kind of talked about earlier, but they also have aggregating factors, and one of those aggregating factor, I believe, is previous instances of domestic violence and repeat offenders. So they may use that to uh, as a as an aggregating factor, which would increase from six games the suspension number of games. So you know, in theory, and I guess again we're speculating, speculating, but it could go up. You know, maybe we'll see eight games, ten games. Uh, you know, we've seen Goodell try that before. I, I, yeah. What was Greg Hardy's original suspension? Ten games? Uh, I think.
1: Uh, oh God, I forgot. I think it might have been ten or twelve. Well, right. if he goes, te- if he goes eight games or ten games on Elliott, I think. I think. Forget Elliott filing the lawsuit. I think Jerry Jones would probably finance that lawsuit. Yeah,
0: I think either way he might, given his comments. So, uh, but but getting back to your original question of what his best argument may be, I mean, I think. As we've seen, it's a it's a tough standard uh, to ha- ask a federal court to overturn these suspensions, and, and basically, you have to show that Goodell was using his own brand of justice essentially to overturn this penalty. So, what what an argument what argument could be made in that regard? And, and well, I think the one that we kind of talked about before is this really inconsistent application of the policy, and we've never seen it him actually following the policy. So that shows that. You know, he's basically doling out justice how he how how he pleases. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think about that? Uh, th-
1: th- right now, that's the only argument that they, we could even identify, since there hasn't been any discipline, there haven't been any hearings, hasn't been any witness testimony, uh, any issues of uh, you know recusal or uh, the, the 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 kinds of legal issues that uh, emerged in Peterson and in Brady uh, kind of took place a little further down the line. Right. Uh, we 're not at that stage yet, but you 're right. That is probably going to be the number one uh, at this stage the the lead argument uh, that that Elliot could raise as to the inconsistency of 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 the punishment and it just bears no rhyme or reason you know to suspend him for anything greater than one game when you 've only suspended uh, Josh Brown for one game for committing uh, actions that are far more heinous that have resulted in in, in just you know har- you know just horrific physical. Emotional and mental abuse, you know, toward towards his wife, uh, that resulted in criminal charges, that resulted in a filing of a civil lawsuit and a divorce. So, using the if you use the Brown case as a benchmark, I think the NFL's hands are tied. But are the NFL's hands tied by virtue of how they've ruled in prior cases? I mean, I mean the the Brady case seems to send mixed messages on that.
0: Right, and obviously we're talking about um, sort of different standards, different different policies of the NFL. The NFL has a specific domestic violence policy here. Um you know that wasn't at issue in Brady and, and Brady uh and Peterson at that time they were using the very broad conduct detrimental power. And I, and I think that the NFL would probably argue that that similar power applies mm-hmm. vis-a-vis the the personal conduct policy, but um you know I think that the chance that a player, when this lawsuit comes, whether it's Ezekiel Elliott or whoever it may be, um, you know their best argument will be that this is you know a specific policy. They're all over the map on how they're applying it. You know, the not only in the number of games suspended, but sort of what it takes to earn a suspension. There's no clear definition of that. It's up to the commissioner. So, um, it would be fascinating from from you know a legal perspective.
1: Yeah, where, where do you see the domestic violence policy um, going from here? Uh, on uh, how, how, at, at some point, we're, we're going to need a different, uh, you know, discipl- disciplinary apparatus. That this is not working. Uh, the fact that we're even talking about it, um, you know, because it, it, every case will 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 raise the same kind of issues. We're going to get into the selective enforcement, consistency issues. how how, what should what should the nfl's domestic violence policy look like how do you how do you enforce it should it be uh zero tolerance should you wait until the uh criminal matter is completed should the league even be involved early on in the investigation while there's still a criminal case i mean what's the solution
0: well you know that's the million dollar question i'm actually working on a piece about that and i'm talking to some domestic violence experts to, to kind of get the more informed wow. peace angle from, from those folks, because I know that, you know, I'm not trained in, in domestic violence and I don't know that, you know, from the people that I've talked to um, and from, you know, our previous podcast with Diana, when, when, you know, she imparted some of her wisdom uh, through other people she's talked to as well. You know, I think that the number one thing is that the focus of the policy needs to be on the, on the victim and not on the player. And, um, this idea that oh, they need to have eight games or ten games or six games is sort of a fallacy and it, it really uh that 's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that you know that we treat the victim in in the best way possible. we hopefully mm. get them help and then secondly, we hopefully get the player help and we find ways to um, I- instead of just suspending them and taking away their income, which re-traumatizes and actually hurts the victim in many cases we find ways to actually help them as people and so that's to me the sort of the biggest thing moving forward and i, I think there's a few other small tweaks that could be made one that you pointed out was they need to wait till the criminal investigation's over with I, there's no reason to jump the gun other than pr reasons and those aren't the reasons that we should be using to draft a policy um you know, we saw it in the Josh Brown case that blew up in their face because they they moved too fast on it. And then all this other information came out. Uh, you know, we saw that in Ray Rice. Who knows if that other video would have come out, but it probably would have if you wouldn't have acted too soon. So that's another big thing I think that could be changed. And then, you know, the biggest thing is they, they need to make their minds up about whether they want to be the domestic violence police or not and if they do they need to follow their own policies which they clearly haven't which we've you know detailed throughout this podcast and others so what what are some of the changes that you see that would be helpful oh
1: uh, well i'd like i'd like to i'd like the nfl to get out of the business of having of feeling the need um to act as big brother and to appease the media to appease uh sponsors and advertisers Uh, During the 1970s, I'm not saying that um, everything was good because certainly uh, there was steroid usage and probably many instances – and incidents of domestic violence. I'm not saying sweep it under the table, but the league has certainly got, gotten a little bit too heavy-handed in its relationship with its players and the fines that are coming out, the suspensions. Uh, if you were to compare what's taking place in 2016 to, to 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it's just mind-boggling that the league has become you know, big brother uh, and, and the big punishers towards its players. And I'd like to see the tenor of the relationship between... Management and labor uh move forward in a more positive direction because right now uh the relationship between the league and its prime asset, its players, has never been worse and uh the, the, and you 're seeing it manifest itself with the anthem protests and and the and j- just the enmity between the the players. Uh, and the league, it, it, it has to improve. And uh, I, I, I don't I don't think so many of these suspensions uh, need to be happening. I'd, I'd like to see I'd like to see the emphasis on on the victims. I'd like players to see, I'd la- I want to see players receive counseling. Uh, not necessarily lose game checks or get suspended. Put them in counseling if they're convicted or if there's a, a nolo lo contendere or no contest. At some point when the criminal case ends, then you could assess it. But you can maybe put them I – I, do, I don't even like the leave of absence of putting them on the exempt list because that's purgatory. Players uh, have a very short uh, shelf life in which to ply their trade and, and you take a player – uh, you know, you take a league where the average duration of a of a career is like maybe three years, four years, five years, and you shelve a player for a full year uh, on an exempt list that's almost like taking his career away because you can never recapture that time. So I'd like the emphasis to be more on treatment and counseling and helping the victim and helping the player become a more positive person in his dealings with women and and, and with society rather than to just punish for the sake of, uh, you know, throwing, you know, meat to the crowd and and to the media and to sponsors. It it has never been as bad as it is now.
0: Right. And I, I agree with most of that there's a few things I disagree with <laughs> <laughs> um, the first is like i, I you know um it's as much crap as the n f l gets and uh you know i'm i'm one of the people that does that um i, I do think that they have good intentions here um for the most part in, in trying to uh, you know do good by uh, by the the general population, hopefully by women. Um so I, I think them having an active role in domestic violence cases isn't the worst thing, but they just need to, like I mentioned, like change it drastically from what they're doing. Um you know, one thing that I was thinking about is, you know, under the league's substance abuse policy, so that policy governs pot uh alcohol related felonies.
1: Both of which Other are legal. Drugs.
0: Both What's of that? which
1: are now, you know, pot is becoming increasingly legal. Uh, you know, Election Day not only brought, you know, right. Donald Trump right. into the White House, uh, but we've seen a, uh, a, a sort of a movement across the country of states and voters in, in, in a number of states uh, voting to decriminalize pot. Right. So it begs the question, um, should the league's policy on marijuana as a pain management tool, uh, tool be changing as well?
0: Right, and that's, I think, a whole different podcast. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's a very valid question, and I think when you, when you look at some of the painkillers out there uh, that are much more harmful, at least in my opinion, than pot, I think it's a very good option, and they should take it seriously. And the NFLPA announced this week that they're creating a not a pot committee, but a pain management medication committee that will sort of review this and then potentially bring it up the league. So I think, you know, I don't think we're there yet from the NFL, but I think that's something that could be coming down the pipeline. But getting back to my earlier point of, of things that I sort of like in that other policy, the marijuana uh, drug policy, one of them, as we've seen with, you know, Josh Gordon and a few other athletes is that they have mandated uh, drug testing. They have mandated counseling and they have they have to meet with counselors who have to give the recommendation to Roger Goodell for them to re-enter the league. So um, you know we've seen this sort of mandated rehabilitation, albeit in a different context of a player. and so why can't we apply that to the domestic violence realm? Why can't we have them um, sort of have to meet with people and feel like that person, the the expert on the case, Deems them to be at mm. least rehabilitated to a certain point before they can come back and play. That's um, so
1: subjective.
0: It is, and that's why you would need a good independent yeah. uh, doctor to make that determination. Um, but at the same time, that's it's, you know it's one of the ideas that I was sort of shooting around in my head that, that might make sense with the domestic violence thing. And you, to your point about them missing part of their career, well, I, that that doesn't bug me. Um, you know, I I I don't know that they should be missing games and not getting paid. They can still get paid, but for them to miss games, I, I think that's sort of part of the penalty, and there's nothing you can do about it.
1: Yeah, well, uh, it's clear that uh, you know with every with every pa- with every new case, um, none of them are handled cleanly. I mean, cases that should be layups, layups. Right. The NFL. Makes a big uh, a big disaster out of yeah. you know both procedurally and in the kind of punishment that gets that gets meted out. I mean, it just seems uh, you know from Brady to Peterson to Hardy, uh, it's more the rule than the exception that the league is going to screw it up somehow. Right. right. And um, you know, I, I I I think the problem right now is that there's this great divide between the players and, and the league. Uh, I'm not sure that the league has high regard uh, for DeMaurice Smith of the players and they they basically are running roughshod uh, over the players. rights. So uh, I I, I don't know what the answer is, but as long as the CBA remains intact and we have Roger Goodell as the NFL commissioner, I think the the Elliott case is not going to be the last one. (laughs) All right. You must be wondering why I'm laughing. And when you hear this on the podcast, I won't say why, but I just saw something on camera that I didn't expect to see.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it was my wife. It wasn't just Dan, kissing a yeah, random Dan female. Dan was kissing was, his wife uh, on our podcast. Into the room. Oh.
0: So. Uh, okay. I did have one other question for you before before we cut <laughs> it off. Um, I think one thing that, that turned up from the USA Today's reporting was that again, the NFL is using a private investigator to investigate the Ezekiel Elliott, the, or the earlier case in, in February, we saw that. Yep. We saw that in the Josh Brown case as well. I mean, does this make sense? I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of, I, I've been trying oh. to think through whether it makes sense for them to hire these uh, PIs as opposed to using their own internal investigations department that they've, you know, keep saying that they've bulked up and oh, uh, I, think I, are- I don't know. What do you think?
1: I think there. I think there's a simple answer, at least in this in the Elliot case. I mean, you need local people. You need local boots on the ground. Uh, if you have a centralized investigative unit in New York on Park Avenue, they're not going to know the lay of the land in South Florida, the different municipalities, how how to how to kind of snoop around and get information. You need to have a local gumshoe, and that's basically who Ed Dubois is. He's a, he's not an employee of the NFL, but he's been an investigator for the NFL, uh, sort of uh, you know handling you know on a case by case basis. Different matters for the NFL. He's based in Miami. He can get you information uh, pretty quickly. He knows the he knows the, the the police departments. He probably knows the public information officers and how to get records from local law enforcement much more quickly than a uh, than a bureaucrat sitting in New York can. I mean so either way you're gonna have to you're gonna have to farm it out to local uh local talent to get that kind of information and to get those documents and to get nine one one records. Uh it's not something that could be handled uh from a home office.
0: Right. And I, I agree with that. I but I I also think that the home office maybe we should be doing a parallel investigation. Um, you know, we've seen them miss things in Josh Brown, which makes you wonder are they relying on the right people, and how are they vetting these people? Are they just trusting people they've been around for forty-five years? I mean, it's a different world out there. No, I'm sure Ed Dubois is a fantastic PI, but um, you know, is is he certainly the best one out there? I don't know. Uh, and I don't know that they know that, but they're you know going to have to trust him, I guess. And well, if they don't know that
1: thing. by now, if they don't know about that by now, they're in a lot of trouble. He's been an investigator for the NFL since the 1960s. He's had almost 50 years on the on the NFL payroll, so to speak. So either he's pretty good, or you know he's friends with somebody in the NFL. So uh, like we've ever
0: pro- seen that before, right? Yeah, <laughs>
1: the information that, that 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 is obtained here, it's not rocket science. Getting copies of 911 calls, incident reports, police reports, copies of lawsuits, copies of records in, in civil lawsuits, family case, divorce cases, uh, police records, uh, any, admin, any bureaucrat, any, any uh, it, rookie uh, you know detective or, or investigator can get their hands on that information pretty easily if they're not sealed.
0: right. Right. And, and again, we obviously saw them miss the divorce case in the in the Josh Brown case and.
1: Well, here's the solution, Dan. The solution is uh, to compel the player to produce that information, and not rely on an outside third party to have to pierce, uh, you know, what may, what may be sealed court records. You could suspend, you could conditionally suspend a player for one game with an opportunity to come back, but it's conditioned or contingent upon the player providing any and all records uh, from his divorce case, from his police case, sign any and all waivers. Uh, so maybe it puts the burden – I don't know. I think that, that might violate the player's uh, privacy rights, and it could compromise his ongoing criminal case if you're conducting a parallel investigation and putting the player in the position of having to uh, you know, uh, turn over uh, documents that are from an ongoing criminal investigation. But maybe the league should turn to the players and say, OK, we'll, 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 we'll give you this suspension, but you have to provide us X, Y, and Z, and if you don't provide all of those documents, we're going to up the suspension at a later date
0: yeah and I just well, my only complaint with that would be how would they know what the suspension would be if they didn't have the information yet but I mean, I think you could say build that into the policy possibly although yeah. there's obviously as you mentioned privacy issues as well as some gray area for abuse um you know from from the player or the
1: it gives a it gives a law enforcement an extra um, uh, wedge to use against the players uh, because if if the if if the prosecutor knows that the player is going to be suspended um, it makes the plea bargaining process a little bit more complicated. I think maybe the NFL should should not be inserting itself into the uh into the criminal process until it has been completed. Uh but at the same time, maybe the way around this uh, you know, the, the, the NFL's problem here in the rice case and the Brown case, it wasn't so much the inconsistent punishment as much as it was learning about new things months later that they could have very easily gotten their hands on early on in the process right right, and one way to solve that might be to put the onus on the players to provide it or to sign releases to authorize the NFL to obtain that information Uh, because it's the surprise it's the it was the element of surprise in the Rice case and in the Brown case which created the controversy and the perception of unfair and light punishment
0: right Alright Dan, well I think we've, uh... Can we go on for a few more hours? This is the longest one yet.